Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 275. And I'm in Dubrovnik in Croatia. It's all the way in the south of Croatia on the Adriatic Sea. And it is unbelievably beautiful. The water is like shades of blues and greens. There's a wall around the city. There's all these small hidden beaches and some much larger, more well-known public ones. There's a beach that you can only get to by kayak or boat, or I guess if you swam. It's a really cool place. You may know, or you may not know, that Croatia was once a part of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia came into existence after World War I. Its constituent parts were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which broke up as part of the results of World War I. And it was invaded by the Axis powers in 1941. So Yugoslavia is made up of what is today, make, let me make sure I get this completely correct, yeah. Uh, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia with like two additional territories for Serbia, which is Kosovo, uh, and Vojvodina, which doesn't exist anymore uh, as a country, and Macedonia. The tricky thing about this is that you have many different ethnicities and what are now today nationalities all wrapped up under this federation of Yugoslavia. In fact, when it first came into existence after World War I, it was called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. So you can kind of see, as has been the case throughout time and throughout history, that all these different ethnicities and identities under one flag can lead to conflict. And starting in, I believe, 1991, yeah, uh, Yugoslavia started breaking up, and it started breaking up in a series of wars. And I've seen these called all sorts of things, uh, Yugoslav wars, uh, wars in the Balkans, uh, the individual ones are the 10-day war in Slovenia, the Croatian War of Independence, uh, the Bosnian War, the Kosovo War, all the way up into to 2000s um, with the insurgency in the Republic of Macedonia in 2001. These at times could be particularly brutal. Um, a lot of people were killed, children were killed. As is always the case, war is horrific. Um, I tell you all this to tell you that in this episode, I sat down with Wade Goddard. Wade is originally from New Zealand, and he came to Croatia to work as a photojournalist without any prior experience, and he threw himself into photojournalism in these various conflicts, which is wild. It's, it's slightly crazy. Um, and he now has a museum here in Dubrovnik. It's right in the old city. Uh, War photo, uh, oh my gosh, is it unlimited or limited? Sorry, Wade. Yeah, War Photo Limited, um, which is a really, really powerful gallery. He doesn't only have his photography and he doesn't only have photographs of the Balkan region. There's stuff from Africa, from, from Vietnam. It's really powerful. And over the years, he's had a number of uh, exhibits and guest photographers, and they have like a compilation of books there from all those exhibits. 
it's it's something I think you really need to see if you visit Dubrovnik. He also has a setup in Bosnia as well. Um, yeah. Uh, where in Bosnia does he have that? Sorry again, Wade. Oh, yeah. It's where I'm going. Um, it's in uh, Mostar. Yeah. But uh, I believe the one in Dubrovnik is much bigger, and that's the one that I've seen so far. Uh, he's got an, an incredible, incredible story. Um, I'll let him tell it. Uh, it's it's quite insane, and uh, honestly, uh, moving and the gallery itself is, um, you know, I think doing really good work to to educate people about how how war is horrific. It sounds so obvious, right? But I think sometimes we can get caught up in in Hollywood or in our own media and in our own sense of nationalism and in our own our own tribe. And we kind of forget that the person on the other side is often exactly like us. And I think that the gallery really points that out in a in a poignant way. So if you go to the notes for this episode, I will have a link to the gallery's website and the gallery's Instagram as well. And as always, I'll have a link to my Instagram and my Patreon account. And you can get some cool stuff from around the world and shirts and stickers from TV TV if you become a patron. All right. For now, I will just say enjoy this conversation with Wade Goddard. First of all, thank you for having us. Um, it's always a an honor and a, and a treat for us when we're on the road to to meet people. And we've been in a lot of homes, and people are quite trusting of us. So thank you for also being trusting and for letting us in your home, meeting all your pets. Um, yeah. So why don't we uh, why don't we start with where you're from and what you were getting into uh, in early life? Okay, well, thank you for, for having me. Um, my name is uh, Wade Goddard. I was born in Wellington, New Zealand, um, and I spent the first half of my childhood in suburbia and then moved to the countryside in New Zealand, sheep and cattle farming, where I spent the last half of my childhood through high school. Hmm learning to ride motorcycles and farming and all kinds of crazy stuff that we did as kids on motorcycles mostly, but hunting and fishing and and what have you. And then at the age of the age of 16, I left high school and became a trainee as a high voltage electric lineman. And those guys that climb poles and mm. change light bulbs and string wires, glorified fencing is what we used to call it. And uh, after I got my license, which was about three and a half years, I left New Zealand for London, did the odd job around pubs, security something, and made money, is not enough to go to Europe, see a country, come back to London, work. And during this period, um, I think it was 19, 1991 in the, in the winter, the Croatian War began, uh, and I was in London, sort of, sort of following it, sort of not really understanding anything about it. Um, 
since I was a teenager, I had a fascination with photography and always had a camera and pretty much self-taught. Uh, and I just so happened to be in London walking past a newsstand where there was a magazine, photo magazine, that uh, had an expose on the on Vukovar in eastern Croatia, one of the cities that fell to the Yugoslav National Army and, and, and to the, to the Serb militia, militia forces in 1991. I picked up the magazine, I brought it, I read it, and at the end of the article, you know, this photographer had taken plenty of black and whites and they looked amazing. And there was, a, there was a written piece as well. But at the end of the article, he left his telephone number, which I found very unusual and very yeah. tempting. So it took me about a month to bottle up the courage and I called him, introduced myself as Mr Nobody, but would be interested in uh, taking him for a coffee if he had time, you know, thinking that I'd just get blown off immediately. But in the end, we came, became quite good friends over the, the winter of 91. And uh, in, when April came around, April 92, uh, the Bosnian War began. And uh, he says to me, well, if this is what you like and this is what you're interested in, let's go. Mm. So we jumped in his beat-up old car. I had some money, not much. I think I had about 600 pounds. I had two cameras. Uh, he had less than me, but more cameras. Him and, and, uh, and there, was another, there was another photographer as well from London, Alex Sutton, I think. We travelled all the way from Zagreb by car, across through over the ferry, onto, into France, ran out of gas as soon as we got there in the middle of the motorway, in the middle of nowhere. And eventually made it to Slovenia, where he had a girlfriend slash wife. Uh, I think he married her f so she got papers. So we hung out in uh, Ljubljana for a week, or less than that and then made our way to Zagreb. And I was finally, you know, in, in Croatia. And after a few days in Zagreb, we hooked up with a couple of other photographers and headed straight to Mostar, which at that time was completely surrounded by the Yugoslav National Army. Uh, and in order to get into Mostar, we had to uh, schnooze a bit with the commanding officer on the Croatian side. And uh, he allowed us to go in, but first we had to go to the top of this hill and wait until the right time. I didn't really know what we were standing around waiting for, but we stood around all day waiting. And the commander came up to my friend and said, you seem to be the leader of this lot. Um, because by this time we were six photographers and two cars. He said, uh, you should know that uh, down this goat track, we have to wait until it's dark enough that they can't see us from the other side and shoot us with anti-aircraft guns, but not too dark that we fall off this goat track that we were going to go down. You should also know that I lost three soldiers on this road yesterday. Um, for some reason he got uh, a really bad feeling and decided at this point that he wasn't going to go in. So I come all the way from London with this guy expecting to 
sort of tag along with him and and in the end at the last second he decided it wasn't for him today the other photographers sort of explained at the same time because they were all seasoned says if someone has a bad feeling then you have to respect it Mm -hmm. and you have to let them do what they have to do there's no pressure so in the so I ended up going in with the we went in with one car and there was the four of us went into Mostar we spent um, a couple of days in Mostar and we stayed in a, in a hotel that was being looked after by soldiers. There was shooting everywhere, uh, especially at night. And so the whole city was basically surrounded, except for this one goat track that we took in. And after two or three days, they said, OK, let's go. And I was sort of standing around thinking, shit, man, I just got here. I don't even know what I'm doing and I haven't done anything yet. You know, I haven't sort of taken a picture of anything that I thought is even picture-worthy yet. So I said, I'm not going anywhere, I'm staying. So they left and I stayed another four, four or five days. I was by myself, had the soldier here and there hang out, to hang out with and showed me around, you know, front lines and positions and who's doing what. Starting, sort of starting to learn a little bit about the story of Mostar, learning less about photography in this sense of uh, news, news photography because I didn't have anyone with me to learn of. And then there came another three journalists, two, two, uh, two Croatian journalists and a, and, a, and a German girl who also spoke Croatian. They came in for the day, I met them, I still wasn't happy to leave yet. I still didn't feel like I'd done anything. So they also left the same day, but they came back the next. They came back without Alex, the, the girl that spoke Croatian and German. And I thought to myself, shit, if I don't go out with these two, maybe I'll never go out, you know. So we went out with them, but we, 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 didn't, we took a different road. We took a main road, which was much more dangerous than the road we'd taken the night before and the night, the previous route in. And uh, we made it. He went, the guy drove like a fucking lunatic, you know, up this road. We were doing, it's a road, there's corners of 60 kilometres an hour. We were like flying around them at 120 to get out of, the, out of Mostar. And in the end, I became extremely good friends with, with the driver, Darko Bandic, who's still now uh, AP photographer. Um, he's covered more wars now than uh, I'll ever know about. Mm. Um, and him and him and myself, from that day onwards, we hung out in Zagreb and worked in Bosnia. We we came to Bosnia every second week. Spent two we spent two weeks in Bosnia and then maybe ten to five days back in Zagreb for almost three years, four years just travelling all of Bosnia together. Um, by that time, uh, we were learning off each other, uh, learning off other colleagues that, uh, that we were sometimes working with or with on other stories. And um, after, after a year, I was stringing for Reuters and he was stringing for, for AP. Stringing means to offer materials up on a ad hoc basis and hopefully sell frames to the news agency. And we survived. We brought uh, 
several beat-up cars over the years and run them into the ground and had all kinds of crazy adventures in the center of Bosnia. All right, let me unpack some things in there. Um, it sounds like you had like just completed your training and licensure for working in electrical, mm -hmm. which would... I would assume provide you with like a sort of steady career trajectory, but then you go to London right away. So what was it about that uh, that you were either unhappy with or wanted to change? Well, the I enjoyed being a lineman. It was a it was a it was a good job. It was well paid. I mean, I was 18 years old. I had a car, a motorcycle, and I rented a house. Mm. Uh, but you know. I worked with heavy machinery and hydraulic oil, and I would go to the I would go to the to the pub on a Friday night and look at my hands, and they're all smashed and covered in hydraulic oil, and think to myself, "What girl's going to want any of these hands anywhere near them?" And I looked at my colleagues, and they were all losing their hair at a young age from high voltage electric. Uh, and I looked at their lives and mostly how miserable they are because they were much older than me. <laughs> I thought, I don't want to do this. Yeah. I don't want to do this. I want uh, to have hands that are acceptable and uh, a, a job that doesn't make my hair fall out. Mm. So uh, I just quit. I got the ticket and I, I left. So then in London... Uh, a lot of people, when they travel for the first time, they get the travel bug and they want to keep traveling. Uh, Europe is a place that you can backpack easily and comfortably. Instead of that, you decided, I'm going to go to this war zone. Uh, what is it, uh, what do you think, that, I don't know what this says about your psychology or what you were thinking. Um, well, since I was younger, I mean, I'm probably 15 or 16, I was, you know, there wasn't a lot of, media sources in New Zealand. We mm. had two channels of television, national, and uh, about two or three national newspapers, and that was it. So news sources were hard to come by. But once I came across a documentary about um, some guy who had uh, filmed uh, a war in the Sahara, I can't even remember exactly where. It might have been Chad or somewhere around, but the documentary was amazing and mm. the, the coverage was amazing. Mm. So uh, that inspired me for something that I would like to do in my life. And that with photography being a passion, those two things to, came together. And it's always something that I had in the back of my head thinking, oh, I'd like to do that as for a living. And, you know, some later teen years got in the way a lot, you know, chasing girls and making money and uh, having fun and crashing cars and stuff like that. Uh, and then I was in London, you know, just working to travel a little bit. I went to to Egypt. I went to I was in Israel a little bit. I travelled a little bit around Europe, uh, and going back to London, making more money and doing that for a bit. And then this this opportunity just appeared, you know. I mean, the telephone number in the magazine was left there for me mm. because I was the only one that used it. That's like your serendipitous moment, yeah. yeah. Uh, so nothing bad was going to come of it if, if the guy didn't want to have a coffee, you know. So what? He didn't. He wasn't interested. Yeah. But 
he turned out to be a really nice guy and uh, we got on extremely well. So that was the beginning of that. And your training then is essentially... My training was Bosnia. Yeah. We trained on the, on the ground. We learned by our mistakes. We learned, uh, me and my, my colleague from Zagreb, we both learned just on the ground. What, it was, we were a good team, you know. He spoke Croatian. Mm. I didn't speak a fucking word in those days. Mm. But I was a foreigner, which also protected him slightly as well. Yeah, it was when you were I'm like picturing it in my head as you were uh, detailing like the early days when you were there, uh, and just like I guess from what I've seen in in the news and on film and stuff like that, like uh, press have an identifier, um, something that shows that they're like a neutral observer. You weren't affiliated initially with uh, a news outlet. Like, how did you? Well, not only that, we didn't even have the money to buy a, a body armor. Body armor was unheard of um, in those days, and insurance didn't exist. You know, Mm. Um, I remember my friend, the the German, uh, Croatian-speaking German girl, Alexandra Stiegelmeier. She said to me once when we were on a job. You have to kill me if I lose three or four, three of four limbs. If I lose both legs, try to save me. If I lose both arms, kill me. She has got it down in a typical German manner, exactly what was acceptable body parts to lose and to keep living. And she had dictated to me exactly what I'm supposed to do in the event that she lost some of those limbs. Mm. Uh, but you know we didn't we didn't have we didn't have the money for that and we cruised around. I mean Bosnia was Bosnia was a even quite early on it was a war of front lines. So as long as you as long as you were with a local that understood where the lines were and where mm. the danger points were, like you stick your head up here, you're going to lose it. As long as you were with a local that understood all of that, you could stay pretty pretty much safe, except for shelling and, of course, the odd sniper was a pain in the ass. But, um, you know, it, it was the war wasn't fast moving. You, you weren't... It was very unusual to be, to, to be fleeing a, an onslaught physically, running for your life. That was extremely unusual mm. because the, the lines were quite slow moving. And entrenched. So it's a little bit well, like a World War II thing. You got to the front line and then if you stuck your head up, you're in trouble. Um, I got body armour before anybody else, actually, as a, as a fluke. We were travelling... We were travelling, um, again, in, in two cars and stopped in a gas station on the way and there was a soldier dressed in black, Croatian soldier dressed in black with another female soldier with him in a big black Mercedes, you know, looking very official. And we all stopped at the gas station, got out of the cars, pumping gas, talking, and he came over and says, I can hear uh, a New Zealand accent. He was an Australian. And, uh, and then we talked on the, on the gas station. He says, listen, I'm a policeman, a military policeman. He had like 16 badges for every opportunity that was needed. 
I can take you through the, the military zone so you don't have to go all the way around as a civilian. You can go through the military zone with me. You'll save hours, which we did. So I sat in the car with him, talking with him. He wanted me to be in his car. I sat in the car with him, talking with him with his sexitary in the back seat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he told stories of, of fighting that he'd been involved in and it just got, it got sicker and sicker and more mental about torture and executions of the enemy that he'd performed. It, was, it got pretty dark as the journey went on. And I started to think in the end, this guy's full of shit, man. You know, these stories are ridiculous. I mean, nobody can believe this. And uh, he, he referred to himself as Klokan. That's his name. And Klokan in, in, in Croatian means kangaroo. And on the way, we were almost at the end of the journey and he stopped, he says, I've got to stop here. He stopped at some hotel in the middle of nowhere. It was obviously not functioning and walked into the, to the coffee bar downstairs and I was right behind him. And I saw the entire coffee bar stand up on its feet and burst out, Clockan, you're back. <laughs> Cemented all the nonsense that he'd been yeah. talking to me before about that I almost didn't believe. Um, Anyway, we got to the end of our journey. He got us past a, a queue, two-day queue of cars trying to cross on the ferry to the peninsula of Park because the rest was too dangerous. So, But there was two days of waiting in line because he was a military policeman. He just took us to the front of the line, put us straight onto the next ferry. And he, he himself crossed as well. Otherwise, we would have been stuck there for days, you know. And at the end of the trip, he, before he said goodbye, he opened the boot of his car and pulled out a, an American combat flak jacket. It's not bulletproof, but it'll stop grenade sh shrapnel and gave it to me and said, I hope this serves you better than it did the soldier I just buried in Zagreb. So I was the first one of all of my group to have body armor. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I was, okay, when we went to the gallery yesterday, um, and I had like a bunch of noticings, like I don't know that I've, I've formed a, I don't know, a strong point from any of them, but in a lot of pictures there, there's mourning, there's like obvious signs of extreme sadness, uh, but in some, it almost looks like uh, sometimes soldiers are kind of like, gleefully participating um, and I wonder if you ever got the sense that like war gave some people like meaning or something to belong to because it, it sounds like I don't know from someone like that it almost sounds like he's like like thriving in that role if that makes sense oh there's plenty of them mm. there's plenty of people that uh, it's the interesting thing I learned about I learned from Bosnia uh, is that people generally can be the best that they can be or the worst that can be mm. in, a, in, a, in a war. And most of them are the best that they can be. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not the best soldiers. They mm. can be amazing soldiers. Uh, they can be amazing killers. Uh, now it's very difficult to decide whether that's the best they can be or the worst that they can be, you know. Mm. Um, but, yeah, definitely there's, there's people that absolutely thrive. 
in those in those situations, and not necessarily in a bad way either. You know. But there's always, you know, your group of hardcore football fan supporters that are very ready to pick up a gun and fight for whatever cause that they want. Hmm. We're we're talking about the breakup of Yugoslavia and like the whole thing kind of gets packaged as that or like the Balkan Wars um, or each like individual independence. But like were there commonalities in the conflicts? Did they bleed into each other? Like did you go from one to the other feeling like it was the same thing? They were they were so interconnected. Mm. That's what made it so very difficult for the outside world to understand what was actually going on. Mm. Um, they were so regional. You know, the war in Bosnia probably consisted, on itself, uh, a war five different, six different wars going on at the same time, between different factions of this and that. And you know, most people make the mistake of thinking that the war was about a religion. Or, or an ethnicity, the war was about land, taking as much as you possibly can, using religion or ethnicity, ethnicity to divide, uh, conciliate, you know, unify your side, demonize the other, divide peoples. Uh, they're all tools in the toolbox to for for driving a population into a war. It's not. You think it's not easy to push a population into war? It's extremely easy. Hmm. You know, it's extremely easy. First, this division between two. Um, you need uh, a spark, uh, some confrontation somewhere, somebody gets hurt, then the demonization comes in, and that builds on the fear. The fear is fueling more separation, more divide, uh, blame, and then you can you can lead it like a like a pack of sheep, you know, like a herd of sheep with with dogs. You can steer it to wherever you want it to go. Um, and the population, through mostly through fear, will follow along exactly as they're supposed to. Mm. Um, which is, a, you know, which is a sad state. It's a sad state for the entire world that we are so easily led into war and so ready to believe the the nonsense and lies that are fed to us. Mm. Um, I saw it in in in, in Bosnia and, and in Croatia how the national media so readily turned the opinions of the population from um, from loving one particular group and into absolutely hating them within the space of six weeks. Mm. And I watched the TV and then I listened to people on the streets and it took six weeks to change the entire population's attitude towards one group of people. Some of the most powerful images from the gallery, actually, I think we're, we're, we're in the video. Like there, there were moments we were watching the video where we were just like, you know, like there's a child here. So like, but holy F, like that is like hard to, to see even as like, I don't know, third hand observer. But some of the most powerful obviously were like, things involving children. Um, I recall one where there was like three people face down, one pretty clearly deceased, and a soldier was like winding up to kick one of the other people who was defenseless and down. Um, do you think like to that point that's 
what is able to enable people to do that, like especially to children, like that they it's just they're conditioned almost by like the message in the media and the leaders? Uh, that particular photograph is extremely famous uh, internationally. That's Ron Haviv's picture of the, the beginning of the war in Bialina. And that group of soldiers is uh, a, a militia, ex-football fans. It's a Serb militia known as the Tigers, uh, and they were extremely brutal. Uh, they did all the extreme dirty work that the Yugoslav National Army wouldn't or couldn't do. And um, they had uh, an extremely nasty reputation reputation for brutality. So, you know, there are groups like that in every war. And uh, you could call them the, the tip of the spear. But I don't think they were conditioned to do that. I think they were already there, mm. you know. Um, it's different if you... You know, you pick up a gun to save your village and you have to protect your village and who wouldn't protect their family and their village uh, and set up a front line and a perimeter and, and, and do the fighting that had to be done. But these guys, these guys were in it for something else, you know. Mm. These guys were in it to kill and to loot, to pillage. They were true criminals. I'll use my own sort of reference point of things that I know about, I guess, to, to make this point. But I'm thinking of um, like post-Rwandan genocide. Uh, or I had read a book about, it was fiction, but um, made some you know historical points about how after like the atrocities in Haiti um, with what Papa Doc and Baby Doc, like then people, people from both sides then like were living in like Haitian American communities in New York, like it's like, oh yeah, like that's the guy who killed my cousin. Or um, I would imagine, like with the characters that you're describing there, that that might have happened. And like, was there much of a reconciliation or some sort of healing? I guess I don't know. Well, as you know, uh, when the end of the, uh, by the end of the war, uh, the countries were divided. So. Mm. There was no reconciliation. There was the only reconciliation that actually happened would be the hunting down and chasing of war criminals and charging war criminals, which the ITCY did to to an extent. Um, but you know, if you're a known member of the Tigers unit uh, that did all that killing in, in Bielina or other places, you're not going to leave Serbia. Mm. You know, you're not going to come and on holiday in Croatia or, or, or go and visit Bosnia again and go back just in case you're recognised. You're not going to do that. You know? mm. You're going to play safe and stay where, you, stay where you are, stay where you're safe. So for that, you know, some of them were found, some of them were charged. Uh, um, but, I mean, I, I'm sure it goes, it goes a long way to those who who lost family members to find that there to to see that there is some sort of justice in it all mm. um, I don't know about that so much. What did seeing everything do to you and and how did it impact you um, I, that's difficult to say you know mm. I mean 
I certainly appreciate uh, a nice peaceful life. I, I'm not looking for any kind of troubles. I'm not, um, I'm quite happy just, I don't feel like I miss anything in my life at all now. Uh, I'm not chasing anything. I'm quite comfortable and quite happy where I am and appreciate what I've got and um, appreciate family. I'm I'm very lucky in that sense. So uh, otherwise, you know, I've seen colleagues of mine that um, it, it hit hard. Um, they've they've turned to drink or their their lives have somehow unraveled or they've had a few marriages that haven't functioned or, you know, there's hundreds of different ways that people deal with it or don't deal with it. Uh, For me, I I think that, I think I got off quite lightly, to be Mm. honest, when when I've talked to to friends and, and colleagues. I don't have nightmares. I sometimes I do, but no, nothing hardly serious. And um, uh, I don't know. I think I was just lucky enough to be able to process everything on the field, you know, and leave it on the field. Um, but saying that, you know, sometimes I haven't. I, I've very rarely gone back through and looked at my negatives from from Bosnia. I have to do this, so they're still, they're still all just in sleeves, not categorised, not even looked at since the day they were shot or filed, you know. And it's already almost 30 years since I took some of these pictures, but I haven't gone through to look at them. I found a picture the other day accidentally. I looked at something, and it's something I completely forgot about, but I found a picture of a um, shelling victims in Tuzla, and uh, the thing that caught my eye was there was a, a kid and a kid and an adult that were hit immediately by a shell and tore them to pieces. And there's a picture of a guy who found the hand of one of them and was oh. returning the hand back to the bodies. You know, the hand had been blown straight off the wrist and, and ended up somewhere in a tree. And this guy was bringing the hand back, and I, I completely forgot about this story. And I looked at it for a while, and it, well, it was heavy, you know. I thought, shit, yeah, now I remember that, and I remember the shock that I was in while I was watching the scene, you know. And another a woman and and two very young children walking past this scene, you know. I was there before there was any services arrived, before the ambulance, before anybody arrived. It was just the neighbours putting a sheet on the bodies and uh, picking pieces up and other people leaving because their house got damaged. And there's this old woman walking with two kids and and she's averting her eyes so she doesn't see it. But the two kids, one in each hand, uh, are uh, staring down at this other boy that obviously they would have known dead on the floor. Oh, God. Yeah. So, you know, that came as a bit of a shock that I'd sort of, firstly, that I'd sort of forgotten about it. Mm. Uh, and secondly, how brutal it really was. Mm. Did you have many close calls yourself? Yeah, I had a few. Um, I was, 
I always, I was, I was always a lucky bastard, not just in war zones, but in <laughs> life in general, just a lucky bastard. You know, I, I crashed seven cars before I left New Zealand. Holy I wrote them off completely. Most of them through drunk driving, but not all of them. You know, oh. uh, you know, some of them on their roofs, and some of them flipping down banks and landing in dams full of water, and in the middle of the night, crazy stuff. And I walked away without a scratch every single time. Um, yeah, there's a few close calls in Bosnia. Uh, some snipers, you know, that barely just just miss you. Inches from your nose a couple of times. Um, some shells that, you know, you were just there five seconds ago and then if you were still there, you'd be dead. And there were some other, a little bit more personal and closer um, scares. Me and my colleague from Zagreb, Darko, we were, we were pushing the limits of what you two young photographers could do at the beginning of the Croat Muslim uh, uh, war in Bosnia. So the, it was day one, day two of the war. And the lines between the two, between the cantons hadn't quite been established yet. But it was a pitch patch, you know, it was Croat, then, then Muslim, then Croat again, then Muslim, and then Croat again these little cantons of populations. And we were pushing through these cantons to get to a Croatian canton in central Bosnia. And the further we went crossing these, which had now become front lines, the, the more scarier it got. And at the last one, there, were, there was a United Nations in central Bosnia and they had physically blocked the roads between the cantons to stop the expansion of fighting by anyone, uh, which actually physically blocked us. And um, we were negotiating with them to let us pass. And in that time, two wannabe Mujahideen Bosnian Muslim soldiers arrested us. And wow. he's a cry. And we were taken to the headquarters which was a hotel by, at gunpoint. I had, my, I had to stand in, by the car with my hands above my head for about 20 minutes while my colleague disappeared into the headquarters. And when he came out, he was as white as a sheet, didn't say a word, indicated for me to get in the car. He got in the car, we drove out, it was nighttime by this time, we drove out back onto the main road, took a right, we had a car following us, one of the soldiers' cars following us with their lights off. And he said to me, the first thing he said to me is, now they're gonna shoot us on this road. Holy shit. And uh, we just sank into our seats and drove steady the back the way we'd come. And we got to the end of this, they, they turned off, the car turned away with its lights off, turned off, veered off, just making sure we were leaving the town. And we got to the other end of the canton where there was again a British armoured APC blocking the road on that side. And then my friend came up with the brilliant idea of not giving up. So we spoke, I spoke with the, the British and figured out when their shift change would be coming because their base was where we wanted to go. So they would bring a new APC out to replace the one that we were standing next to. 
and that one would return the back the way we'd come all the way to the base where we wanted to go. So we made an agreement with them that we were going to follow them during the shift change. But at the other end of the canton, they had a APC that they must remove off the bridge before we get there so that we don't have to stop, that we can just blast our way through because we were afraid we'd get arrested again at that same spot and then we wouldn't get away with anything if we got arrested again. So the British were okay with it. They were a little bit, who are these crazy guys? But in the end, they were okay with it. So eventually after two hours there, APC turned up to replace these guys that we were hanging out with and we left sneaking behind now. It's almost 11 o'clock at night, sneaking behind this APC all the way back through the can- uh, through this canton that we just got kicked out of. And when we got to this bridge that was blocked, it didn't unblock itself, you know, and we stopped right behind this APC. And we waited, which felt like minutes, but it must have been seconds. And then I saw the two guys that arrested us in the first place off maybe 50 metres away, running towards us, cranking their Kalashnikovs, coming down to aim. And I said to Darko, if you you have to do something now. He put his foot on the gas, passed the APC on the other side, of them, so it was covering us. And just in the nick of time, the APC that were the other APC that was cl- blocking the bridge just moved out of the way, just in time for us to straight through. Finally, we got to the next town, which was under Croatian control. And we went to the headquarters to see this guy, Dario Kordic, in fact, who was convicted war criminal now. And he was the commander of the, that region. And uh, we got to the headquarters. He wasn't there. We got arrested by the soldiers there because there was no way in the world that we could have come through right. that place <laughs> we just arrived from to get there. He said, it's impossible. You must be spies. <laughs> and we spent the night in the cell. <laughs> Until Dario Kordic woke up in the morning and then we had coffee with him and everything was cool. Holy shit. (laughs) So, yeah, if we got caught the second time, they would have killed us. I mean, that sounds like a movie. That's Mm. crazy. There's another incident that I can't remember, but my good friend, Emmanuel Ortis, who has images in the gallery and who who was also with me on my first time in Mostar, he told me a story once where we both got arrested and um, we were separated. I was taken to the headquarters and he disappeared. And uh, I was chatting with his commander. I can't remember much of it. And then he said that the commander got on the radio and called the guy that he was with. And he was in the forest somewhere on his hands and knees with a gun on the back of his head waiting to be executed. That these guys are okay, you can let them go. What? Yeah, I don't remember that. That's what he tells me happened once. So you got out. Um, they separated us to check one out and they were ready to kill the other one on, on command. And the commander said, no, no, let him bring him back. All right, you're here with me today. You're, you got out, right? Famously, um, I, was qu- I was quite interested in, in Marie Colvin's life. She... Um, I think was killed in Syria, 
very recently an American uh, like war correspondent was killed in the Ukraine. Uh, a lot of people keep going back until they can't go back anymore. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of wars and conflicts in the world, as your gallery shows, because it's not only about the Balkan region. Uh, what brought it all to an end for you? Um, again, nothing I do really is planned, you know. Uh, it just happened that way. By the end, I mean, I, I honestly, when I came first time to Croatia, I had 600 pounds and two cameras. I thought I'd be here a month and that would be it. I didn't believe for a second that I would last any longer than a month. Mm. I, thought I was planning if I can get some pictures like him and last a month, then I'd be extremely happy with myself. Uh, and again, this this opportunity to to start this museum uh, came exactly at the right time. I was I was in between in between wars already I, after after Kosovo, which for me finished probably two thousand and one. Although the war sort of did finish in ninety nine, but you know there was still lots to do afterwards. Uh, I was in between wars and I'd already sort of been out of the business for maybe two years already and and then it was the beginning of Afghanistan and all I could think about was chicken and rice, mm. mud huts with fleas and bigger idiots with guns that aren't even drunk. So where do you find uh, the place to communicate? You know, mm. Drunk soldiers aren't. They can be aggressive, but, you know, if you bring yourself down, you can find a way to communicate. But I thought these guys drunk on religion and uh, living in flea hut, I just couldn't see myself going back and doing that again, you know. Uh, so I, I had some... I was tired after Kosovo. Uh, in 1999, I remember breaking down once on the border up in, in Albania. I just had my first kid. Uh, I'd been out of the story for a month while my first kid was born and I came back into the story and I was working every single day, 18 hours a day, just the story, you know. And uh, seeing all these poor refugees and coming across the border into Albania, thousands and thousands of them on a daily basis, you know, and one day 100,000 refugees with nothing, no facilities, nothing in northern Albania to deal with them. Uh, they could barely feed them bread uh, and thinking, you know, as a, as a young parent, fresh parent, how devastating that must be for the parents looking after, trying to survive with all these children and most of the men actually not there. Mm. You know? uh, so th th that was extremely taxing. Uh, and at the same time, I got ambushed by some criminals and uh, we lost all our equipment. And uh, In Kosovo? No, in northern Albania we got... There was, I had a vehicle with um, an AP journalist and Ron Haviv, who was uh, Newsweek at the time, so was I. And uh, there was an AP car also with satellite television uplinks and journalists and photographer. We were leaving a town in northern Albania and we got uh, ambushed in the early morning hours. They emptied two clips across the cars, got us out of our cars. We had policemen with us for protection, but they weren't much help. 
they were standing on the side of the road with their Kalashnikov hanging off their elbows with their hands up shitting themselves as well. And the, the guys stole their cars and everything in it. You know, so I lost all my equipment and my car and everything. And uh, two days later, you know, I was borrowed equipment from somebody else waiting for my equipment to arrive. And um, watching these kids in this horror, it all became too heavy. I remember one mm. French photographer picked me up off the road and took me to a coffee bar, sat me down. That was the one time that I sort of ran out of ran out of power. Yeah, I I would imagine so. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, in like the early days of having the gallery, I was wondering, like, sort of what the response of locals was to it, um, because I would imagine it's obviously like a quite difficult reminder of what happened. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, there's, I have a lot of understanding in, in, in that. It's, it's, it's a bit strange for, for a museum to open about a local conflict that is run by someone who comes from the other side of the world, mm. you know. Um, and to most of them, you know, they don't know that I had the experience throughout Bosnia and I was even in Dubrovnik during 92, during the second round of shelling. But most of them don't know that I don't have experience or involvement in the, in the, in the, in the war. Locals don't come to the museum. Mm. Uh, there's two reasons for that. In my guess, firstly, is it's just too hard for them to look at. It brings back memories and things that they'd rather suppress. Um, they don't want that. They don't want to upset their afternoon, you know. And I understand that perfectly. You know, there was plenty of people that lost relatives and and buildings and lifestyles because of the war. So it's too hard for them. And there's also a, 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 a group that thinks that who is this fucking guy telling our story? Mm. You know, and, and, and for that reason, I have on purposely not tried to concentrate anything on Dubrovnik. And I've always tried to keep this wider aspect of basically of war. Um, and, uh, you know, some some realities of it, uh, some some insights of of war, and all wars are basically the same, you know. When you can hold pictures up from Syria or Bosnia or Ukraine, I think they all look the same. Um, so that's why I've 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 needed to keep always. The subject uh, specifically uh, one part of it about Yugoslavia because my clientele are tourists. The tourists come to visit. Local people do not. So they have come to this region. They want to learn something about uh, the wars in Yugoslavia. Um, so I have this section that's just about the former Yugoslavia, which is actually only covering Croatia, Bosnia and Kosovo. And uh, then 
also to to bring the the point home that that all wars are devastating. I have the other floor which is concentrating on feature stories, features from all different wars around. You know, I've had from Iraq, Afghanistan, Central African Republic, Yemen, uh, the Rohini uh, crisis or exodus, um, chasing uh, ISIS, uh, now is Lebanon. So the next year will most certainly be Ukraine. Mm. So, you know, the idea is that there's always something fresh and and relevant and there's the history of the region. And to try to give the idea that, uh, or the reality that uh, war is not this Hollywood version of good guys and bad guys and there's not there's, it's not glorious and it's not there's no honor um, that it destroys and devastates everybody and everything that it touches and this is the kind of message that I'm trying to to bring through it's trying to sort of contradict the the top gun uh, Hollywood version of the recruiting program that seems to be working in Hollywood. Um, I'm fighting that. It's a heavy experience being in the gallery. Um, and this is just my opinion, but I I don't do so well in like big crowds of people. Um, and it it's strange sort of going from the gallery to like the main plaza there in Dubrovnik and there's just throngs of people. And like we saw this guy uh, get like skipped over in the queue for waiting to get his ice cream and he like flipped out on the worker. And then he like, he, like, he was gonna buy a water. He like slams it on the counter and like stormed out. And he's like, no, you don't get my business, right? And it's just, it's just weird uh, to go and like, you know, yeah, see people face down in a pile of blood to then like be in sort of like this like consumer bubble almost of like people that don't really have an issue <laughs> um, and are making things an issue. I don't know. No grand statement there, but just uh, it was a strange experience. Yeah, it, is, it, it can be bizarre, you know. Um, I mean, it, it is bizarre. I, I, I see a lot of people come in, you know, they're coming in, they're on their holiday mode, all happy and barely dressed and uh, after 30 or 40 minutes, you know, they leave with an extremely heavy heart, some with tears in their eyes. I've seen often people just leave early because they can't get through it. Mm. Um, but interestingly enough, they never fail to thank me on the way out, you mm. know, no matter how disturbing they found the whole thing. They're always thankful for it, and I think it's this. You know, it gives them a, gives them a balance that uh, it doesn't matter how many times people jump in front of you in the queue for mm. for your ice cream. You know, you're lucky that you're standing in the queue in the first place, and that there is ice cream. I was noticing something. Um, well, two things really. One, uh, I really liked the inclusion of photos of life sort of carrying on as it needs to because life still has to move on, I guess, during a war. And so there were some depictions of like, 
um, some children laughing, and um, often those pictures for the Balkan region, I noticed, involved women. Um, a lot of the pictures of mourning and of joy, uh, whereas the soldiers were men. And then when you, you move into the other room and you get into to wars in Africa and like South Asia and, and Southeast Asia, especially with like child soldiers, you see more women and, and female soldiers. Um, and I just, I don't know, I thought that was super interesting. There was one picture, maybe it was Bosnia, but th there's a woman who looks like quite beautiful and she has these like uh, fashionable shades on and a hat. Uh, and that looked kind of out of place. So I don't know. I don't know if you, you noticed anything about like gender, I guess, when you were there. Oh, yeah. The, um, the, the national armies, so for the Croats, it was the Croatian army. Women were not allowed to serve on the front lines. But in the, the Croatian militia, militia which was um, not a national army, but it was a militia from a, from a right-wing political party, they accepted anybody, no matter the religion, no matter the background and no matter the gender, and they would fight on the front lines. So if you were a woman, you wanted to join the army, you had to join the militia. You couldn't join a national service army. And the same with the Serbs. And there's that woman that you're referring to was part of this group of tigers. Mm. Um, the militias will take anyone as long as you're willing to fight. Uh, I didn't come across, I came across quite, I came across women in uniform quite often, oh. um, mostly manning checkpoints uh, or not so often on the front lines, but I, I did come across them. Mm. I don't know. It, it'd be silly to ask, like, how has Dubrovnik in Croatia changed since that time? Obviously, it's quite different, but in more recent years, um, you know, in the in the 2000s, how have you seen uh, the city and the region change since you've been living here? Or has it not? Well, you know, it's been 30 years since I first arrived, so, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've witnessed quite a lot of change. Um, but, you know, especially technology. You know, the Croatian banking system went from archaic to new world. It missed the second phase, so, you know... So, banking system in Croatia is better than the banking system in a lot of German towns. Wow. Um, so this technology stuff changed dramatically. Also internet and communications and all of this all happened very quickly. Um, and you see that now, you know, the Americans are coming with their visa cards and they still have to sign the slip. Mm. Yeah. I mean... Every time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Europeans never are signing the slip of a credit card anymore. Mm. Um, so, you know, the technology has moved very quickly. Um, I have been... I'm disappointed with, uh, with, with, with the political parties. For me, they're just... They're all nonsense. Uh, for, for most of the population, I think they also agree. Um, Seems like the political parties are not working for the people at all. Um, mm. Mostly working against them. Uh, it's most places now. <laughs> like most places, you know, they just. It makes me wonder sometimes if we actually need a political party because we seem to be run by Brussels anyway. Mm. Um, whatever they say, we do. 
So it, it doesn't really, you know, the, the politics part is disappointing. Um, some things have, have got worse in the new Croatia, for like the education system, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as what it used to be, although I don't personally know, only through people who, have, who went through the system. The, the Yugoslav system was fantastic mm. uh, and, and very strong education in the, in the entire country. And now it feels like they're dumbing down the nation. Mm. Uh, but I don't think that's just happening here in, in Croatia. I think that's global. So there's, you know, uh, there's some things that I find uh, they, they, they could have put more energy on spending too much money on infrastructure when it comes to roads and bridges and, and stuff like that instead of uh, the necessities that we need when, in health care, education, um, caring for the, for the elderly. There could be more money spent on that, perhaps less money spent on military. I mean, m spending money on a military for us is kind of stupid. I mean, they're planning to buy, spend 900 million euros on some aeroplanes. I mean, by the time they start them up, they've already left the airspace. I don't understand what a waste of money. That sounds familiar. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so, you know, that money could be spent so much better. But again, the government is not here to help us. The government is here to divide us keep us bickering amongst ourselves while it does uh, what the corporations really want them to do. Mm. You know? So take public money, spend it on corporations. We're, we're at about an hour, so I'll wrap in a moment. Um, and obviously I'll have a link to the gallery and the address and everything so people can find it in the, the Instagram account. Um, but if somebody's in Dubrovnik, um, maybe especially with like a local focus, what is something that you would recommend that they do or somewhere they eat or something they eat uh, while they're here? I mean, my, my favorite part of this, this whole region is the sea. Mm -hmm. I mean, the sea, you've got to be on the sea. If you can take a boat to the islands, uh, barbecue on the islands, on the boats, uh, that's where it's at, mm -hmm. you know. The, the city is, Dubrovnik, old city is amazing to see. You know, it's, uh, you spend three, four hours in the city, you've discovered the city, mm -hmm. do the walls, uh, but, you know, Dubrovnik is all about the sea. You should be on a boat somewhere. Cool. Um, thank you for this. This was really uh, an honor to get to talk to you. Uh, your story is, is incredible. So, uh, so cheers. Thanks. Well, thank you for having me. That's a wrap on episode 275 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Right now, uh, as I record this outro, uh, I'm actually in Bosnia. <laughs> so intro in Croatia outro in Bosnia. So I'll have some stuff from here, uh, hopefully. And I have one more episode that I recorded in Dubrovnik that will be coming shortly after this one. So yeah, pumping out lots of cool stuff um, from, from my summer travels. So hope you enjoyed this one. Please like, subscribe, tell a friend, all that good stuff. And also, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very soon.